Father Brian Letts. Thank you, Father Tim. Uh, it is good. Oh, see, see uh, lots of faces that I know in the crowd uh, today. Uh, I know probably many or most of you, at least by sight. You may be well aware that priests know the faces of thousands of people uh, because we meet so many, and Jackson is no different. Uh, as you heard, I, I'm a transplant to the city, and it's just been so wonderful to spend the first seven years uh, of my priesthood here with all of you guys. And so it's a joy for me to join you guys today to speak a bit about divine mercy and about uh, Eucharistic adoration. Those were the uh, topics that I was given by the lovely Patty Spencer, whom you all know, I'm sure. And so I will just say ahead of time that to whatever extent uh, this, um, this time that we have together is edifying for you or uplifting or helpful for you, you can credit the prayers of my sister. I was on um, vacation this past week with them, which we do every year as a big family at the end of June. And I was talking with her about, you know, this upcoming um, perpetual adoration celebration and a talk that I was going to give. And as I often do, I was saying to her, and you know what? It just, I just really, I'm not ready. You know, I just have so many things that I feel like I still have to prepare. As, are, as is true with most things in life where you never quite feel totally prepared. And she said, well, I will pray for you and for your your, speak, your your talks on divine mercy and on Eucharistic adoration. And I said, thank you. I need that. And so this has sort of been a, a theme of, I think, my own uh, priesthood is uh, the reminder that Jesus gives in the Gospels that the Holy Spirit is also a player in your life. And as much as we do our part, God is also going to promise to do his part, and we have to let him do that, but it's never very comfortable. So even though uh, these topics are familiar to me, uh, I was still driving in today, looking at all the cars and thinking, oh my gosh, now I'm really nervous. <laughs> part of me was hoping that not a lot of people would be here. Uh, <laughs> so nonetheless, uh, let's just begin very briefly with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, you are the reason that we are here. And we thank you for bringing your life, your love, your salvation to each of us, to our families, to our community here in Jackson. And we would ask you, God, today to be with us as we spend time in reflection upon your holy and divine mercy and upon Eucharistic adoration and how in a special way you meet us in both of these places to advance the mission of the kingdom uh, that you brought to bear on the face of the earth when you walked uh, through your earthly life and that you have called us to continue in mission until you come again. And so we pray that you would just anoint this time together, that you would prepare each of our hearts to whatever it is that you want each of us to know and to remember, and that in all things, God, uh, you would be glorified and that you would hear the, the prayers of your faithful people who call out to you every day uh, to you who love to be our Savior. And so we humbly give this time over to you, Jesus, by praying the words that you have given to each of us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in preparing for these, um, these two talks, there is, of course, an enormous amount of things to be said. And uh, if anything comes across like a little bit of a fire hose or extensive information, I just want you to go ahead and remember whatever it is that God wants you to dwell on. And if you sort of get bored or if you get lost or if you just, you know, kind of close your eyes and take a nap for a little while, any and all of that is perfectly okay with me. Uh, just whatever it is that strikes you, you can just dwell with that today. But there are um, lots of ways to go about this. And so I've chosen to begin uh, this first talk on a divine mercy by trying to impress upon us the value of a single life. I don't really know how better to begin a talk on divine mercy than by trying to consider what God thinks about a single human life. And so one of my favorite stories to tell is actually a story that is quite somber and quite serious and what might seem to be a little bit intense uh, for talk about the divine mercy of God uh, because it involves one of the more tragic moments in our nation's history, which was an event that occurred in 1927 on the 18th of May uh, in our own state of Michigan. Now, I don't, I don't know at this point in life if there are any of us here who were alive in 1927. If you were alive in 1927, God bless you for making it all the way to 2023. Uh, but it was a very sad moment in our nation's history because it involved um, a community here in Michigan right outside of Bath Charter Township. And it was the, uh, the day of... May 18th became uh, the, the, the most deadly school tragedy in our nation's history, even to this day. Uh, one of the things that we suffer from, one of the things that we really lament about our modern day, especially in the last 20 years, since the year 2000, have been you know, the successive events uh, that have unfolded in our nation's schools uh, and school shootings and these great tragedies that are coming about uh, because of the deep brokenness of, you know, people who don't know the mercy of God, don't know the love of God, were denied that in their own life and believed that the best thing to do uh, was to make everybody else feel the pain that they were in. That is not actually uh, a new experience. It's biblical. It goes all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 3 and uh, the fall of Adam and Eve <laughs> and thereafter following uh, the, the battle between Cain and Abel. And so we are very well, well acquainted in our human lives with tragedy and pain and suffering and even the pain uh, that we give to each other to the point even of ending each other's lives. This disaster, the Bath School tragedy, uh, came at the hands of a local resident whose name was Andrew Kehoe. And he, uh, in his own life, was 
uh, a very well-respected man of his Bath community, uh, was very neighborly, uh, was involved uh, in not only the Bath uh, community in general as a, as a farmer, but also uh, involved in the school community as well, and played a large role in the development of um, the Bath school system and the Bath uh, Consolidated Charter School, which picture is what you see here. This was a brand new building uh, uh, in those days as a way to help bring all of the children of the community under one roof. But Andrew Kehoe was also not a man without his struggles, including family struggles, tax struggles, uh, mortgage struggles, illness in his family, including and most especially with his wife. And he became very disillusioned and very fed up with all the things in his life that were unfolding because he felt like he was out of control. And all of the things in his life that he was trying to keep, everything was being taken from him. And so in an act of great desperation, he plotted uh, to visit that pain uh, upon all of those who were it, he perceived to be inflicting that pain upon him, most especially the school district and the school board uh, and the plans for this consolidated school, uh, which he, he fought against. And so uh, given that he was a knowledgeable man of the community and uh, helpful nonetheless, long acquainted with uh, the school culture. He himself had access to all the school buildings, including this one, and he spent several months acquiring, at that time, uh, several hundred pounds of dynamite, which actually, if you can imagine, this was much easier to acquire uh, back in those times. Uh, farmers, of which he was one, acquired dynamite on a, a fairly regular basis from army surplus stores as a way to help them clear land, remove stumps, things of this nature. And so he was able, over a series of months, uh, to uh, gain access to the basement of this school building uh, to plant TNT explosives that he planned to detonate all at the same time. Now, uh, those, um, those detonations were slated to occur on the 18th of May, 1927, and they did. It was the greatest tragedy that, uh, as I said, ever befell American education. And uh, of the 300 students that were in the that were in the Bath Consolidated School District, 200 of them were in the building on this morning in this building, and uh, unfortunately, 38 of them lost their lives. Six more adults lost their lives uh, as a part of uh, the detonation of those explosives. Uh, which rendered the north wing of the building uh, in rubble. Uh, there was a sort of a hidden mercy or a silver lining, if you could call it one, which was that he planted explosives uh, underneath the entire basement, both wings. The entire school was intended to fall to the ground on that day, uh, but only one section of explosives detonated. And so many lives in the school were spared, uh, but... Uh, many were lost as well. Now, the reason that I begin a talk on, the, on Divine Mercy, talking about, uh, speaking about the, the greatest tragedy in American education and the loss in terms of loss of life, was because there was a particular person on that day uh, who was a young girl, aged 10 at the time, and her name was Caroline, Caroline Dice. She was born and grew up in the Bath community. 
and she was a student at this school. And it was the elementary school side, which was the north wing uh, of, of that building, which collapsed, and her classroom was in that wing of the building. Now, she grew up in a normal family and uh, was sort of a, a happy, normal child. And it just so happened that on the 18th of May, 1927, she didn't go to school because she was sick. And Caroline stayed home that morning, but would learn of the news uh, of the bombing uh, that took place because word spread very quickly. Uh, this became front headlines of the New York Times the very next day, and it became the site of uh, tens of thousands of people that rushed to the Bath community to see this uh, horrific event. But as fate would have it, and as God's providence would have it, uh, Caroline was not in the, uh, in the classroom that collapsed that day, and she survived the Bath School disaster. Caroline Dice was uh, uh, someone who will never be remembered in history. You never will hear her name, but she is a name well remembered by me, uh, because Caroline Dice was my great-grandmother. And she, tragedy, tragic as it was, was spared her life on this day at the age of 10 years old. And the reason that that is you know, so, so beautiful and so significant uh, and perhaps a very uh, important way to begin a, a, a talk about divine mercy is to see the kind of consequence that a single life holds. And what would change in the world if even one person didn't exist or their life turned out differently? And for me, in my life, my great-grandmother Caroline is the perfect example of that. If for no other reason than she didn't die on this day when many of her classmates did, and because she was spared by God, she grew up and married a man named John, and they gave birth to a daughter named Shirley. And Shirley grew up and married a man named Robert, and they gave birth to a son named Ronald. And Ron grew up and married a woman named Joan, and they gave birth to a son named Brian. And so I exist today because my great-grandmother's life was spared the worst tragedy in the history of American education. And so it's very important for us to always be aware of what Jesus thinks about the value of a single human life. Because the value of a single human life is the reason, the only reason that God would ever dispense divine mercy upon the earth. And sometimes in our lives, we get a sort of a sense of that more, in a more visceral, personal way because we can understand the consequences of, we'll say, the aftermath of that or what the value of a single human life brings to bear upon the earth. And I know that it brought me to bear on the earth. And I thank God and bless God that he made me and I hope and pray that in my own life, 
I have been able to be a blessing or bring about change, help, reconciliation, love to all the people that I know, that I've grown up with, that uh, now I get to serve as a priest. And it's amazing to think about just how much depends upon the mercy of God and what had to come to pass in the lives of all of your forefathers and foremothers in order for you to even exist it is impossible that any single one of us is even alive right now except for the sheer mercy of God the sheer mercy of God because God has valued your life so much as to ensure that every single one of your forefathers and foremothers were born into a world in such a way that they could see the day that their own child was born into the world and their own child was born into a world. And not a single one of them of their line was broken all the way down to you from the very beginning of the world to now. Jesus loves us this much. It's helpful for us uh, to grasp uh, the subject of the divine mercy of God by reminding ourselves of just how impossible it is for us to even be alive. Because if we don't understand the value of this and of our own life, there is no way that we can comprehend the divine mercy of God. And it, as a side note, is probably helps us to understand and give perspective to how much of uh, the world's suffering is precipitated because people don't know the value of their own life, right? Because we don't know the value of our own life, we, we can't know the value of anyone else's lives. And so the suffering of the world, the story of Cain and Abel goes on and on and on. But Jesus came to break that cycle. And so uh, what we have today in the year 2023 uh, is something that certainly was initiated by Jesus from the very beginning. Uh, the divine mercy of God was always with the human race. But what we know today to be this devotion to divine mercy is something uh, that has unfolded much closer to our time. Because it began uh, with uh, the, the heroic life of a young girl named Helena who lived her life in the early half of the 20th century. We don't know her as Helena. Uh, we know her as St. Faustina. And St. Faustina was the great missionary, the great servant, uh, the great prophet of the divine mercy of God, uh, which he has intended in our modern day and age to sort of, we'll say, disperse in an ever greater way upon the face of the earth. Helena was born in 1905. Okay, so you have to be able to put uh, our sort of modern contemporary devotion to divine mercy in its context. Maybe we all remember our history lessons in 1905 and in the turn of the 20th century, and we think about what was going on at that time. In, in the turn of the 20th century, we were uh, ramping up to what would become uh, the onslaught of World War I, which she, of course, lived through. She was born during the reign of Pope Pius X, who is now a saint, 
uh, venerated as a saint in the Catholic Church. And Pope Pius X was the successor to Pope Leo XIII. Pope Leo XIII was the man that we can credit for the St. Michael prayer. It was during the pontificate of Pope Leo XIII that he received this great and mighty vision where he saw, as it were, this battle or this wager between God and the devil. And the devil went before the throne of God and promised to, to, to visit upon the earth his fury for a uh, hundred years that he would, be able to he would be able to destroy the human race off the face of the earth. And uh, he, in a way, as it were, challenged God. He dared God to let this happen. And as a result of this vision that Leo XIII saw in his prayer, he composed the prayer to St. Michael as a way to beg God to bring his defense upon the world. Now, Pope Leo XIII would have no idea what the 20th century was going to hold uh, because he sort of died at the cusp of the turn of the century. Uh, but that vision that he had would sort of come to pass and many of the things, many of the events, uh, including the events of the early 20th century that continued to happen in the lives of people like Helena Kowalska, who became Sister Faustina, uh, but also the Seers of Fatima in 1917 that also happened uh, during uh, the, the, the mid, in the midst of World War I. Great evil was going to come upon the face of the earth like never before seen in the 20th century. It was the bloodiest century in the history of humanity, uh, grave evils were visited upon the human race by our own lack of knowledge about the value of human life. And it was, it was in this context, Jesus, foreseeing what was going to unfold, wanted to provide a remedy. You know, as St. Paul says in the New Testament, where sin abounds, God gives grace to abound all the more. And so God never abandons, right? And certainly uh, in his divine knowledge, knowing the whole history of the world uh, and how he would come to intervene, uh, he brought us Helena Kowalska, whose life lasted only 33 years, uh, but they were 33 years of uh, intense prayer and devotion and love. And she became an apostle of the divine mercy of Jesus who revealed these things to her. This is what she looks like, for those of you who love pictures. I love pictures. Uh, her face wasn't actually that long. Uh, it's just the perspective. <laughs> she knew that she wanted to be, uh, to grow up, to enter the religious life, even at the age of seven. She was one of those. That was not me. I did not get that call at the age of seven. Uh, but she did, uh, because God had something very holy in store for her. But she uh, was born into a family of ten children, and so her parents, were, who were peasants and poor, uh, depended upon the older children to help support the family. So uh, she only went to school for three years and uh, wanted to uh, enter uh, the religious life, but was put to domestic work in order to help sustain her family at the age of 15. And she did this for two and a half and three years, uh, but then continued believing that Jesus was calling to her, finally was able to be accepted into religious life at the age of 19. So think about that. What were you doing at the age of 19? 
man, I didn't know what my life was going to hold at the age of 19. I was enjoying college. <laughs> I had no idea what life was about at the age of 19. But she was so on fire with the love of Jesus that she wanted to serve him with her whole life. And so she did this. She entered the congregation of the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy. And she actually found it not strict enough for her liking. She was like, these people are too lax and they're lazy and they're not austere enough and they're not fervent enough. And she begged Jesus that uh, he would let her leave. And Jesus said, nope, I need you to stay and be obedient and be holy and be leaven in this community. And so she obeyed Jesus. She was in uh, spiritual life, or she was in this convent for the rest of her years, uh, which would number what, 13, about, I think so, yep, 14, 13 and a half, depending on whatever the dates are. Uh, and to all outside uh, spectators, she, her life seemed fairly straightforward, and her religious life was fairly, we'll say, dull. Uh, she wasn't prominent in her community, but she was known to be uh, faithful and holy and pious. She began uh, to experience uh, revelations of Jesus several years uh, into, her, uh, into her consecrated life. And he began to reveal to her his heart of love and his desire to bring his divine mercy uh, upon the earth. And he wanted her to be an apostle of that mercy. And as she uh, received these revelations of Jesus, she eventually wrote them down. And we have that a writing of her life that she wrote out of obedience in what is called a, the di her diary. Uh, you, can, you can purchase that today. It's very easy. You just go right on Amazon. Um, but it's an incredible work. If you ever want to hear a conversation between a really holy nun and Jesus, she received visions of Jesus and visions of Mary uh, who wanted nothing more than the mercy of God to be given to the human race in order to prevent the human race from being destroyed. And there are many things uh, to be able to recount about that are written in her diary. And I can't even come close to uh, reciting the whole thing because that would, number one, take too long. Number two, it would be boring to everybody. And so uh, I'm just going to pick very small number. Jesus would, among other things, remind uh, Sister Faustina that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, he said, I sent prophets wielding thunderbolts to my people, but today I am sending you with my mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish aching mankind but I desire to heal it, pressing it to my merciful heart. It was through this gift of Jesus' divine mercy that he would even give to her a vision uh, of his heart torn open with love. And I don't know, you want to know what? I'm feeling a little bit unprepared because I wish I would have had. <laughs> I should have put the image on there of divine mercy. Uh, maybe you've seen this image before. Hopefully that you have. I think that, Father Tim, do you have one in one of these big, oh, is it up here? Oh, we're all looking at it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not paying attention. I walked behind the altar. Okay, I can't see. I didn't know it was in front. Yes, that image. Jesus gave that image and asked that it be, uh, be made a painting to be venerated as a source of protection and grace in the homes of all the faithful. And so she had that uh, painted. Um, 
as a part of her obedience to Jesus and obedience to her spiritual director, who would be her sort of her cause uh, in the outside world. She did not live long. Uh, she, she only lived to the age of 33, as I said, and she died in 1938, uh, being consumed by tuberculosis. But she gave over her life uh, as a sacrifice to Jesus and reparation for sinners. And she had a special devotion to pray for the dying. And as a part of the devotion to the divine mercy, as a part of this image of the divine mercy and the gift of divine mercy, Jesus uh, wanted especially uh, this veneration of his divine mercy to be applied to the dying, as was uh, her custom to pray for those. And so he would give to uh, Sister Faustina what we know to be the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And I'd like to um, just recount her experience of this prayer, what, became, what came to be known as the Chaplet. And this was a vision that she received in 1935, three years before she passed away. She received a vision of an angel that was sent by God to chastise a certain city for its evil and its lack of repentance. And as she saw this angel about to strike, she began to pray fervently for mercy. But she found that as she prayed her that her prayers were powerless to prevent um, the chastisement of this city. And in the midst of this distress, she suddenly saw a vision of the Holy Trinity. And she felt the power of Jesus' grace within her. And at the same time, she found herself pleading with God for mercy with words that came to her interiorly. And these were the words that she heard and that she prayed. She prayed, Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us. And as she continued to say this inspired prayer, she saw that the angel of destruction became helpless and could not carry out the deserved punishment. And so the next day, as she was entering the chapel, she again heard this interior voice instructing her how to recite this prayer. Later on, our Lord would call this prayer the chaplet. And this time, have mercy on us uh, was added, uh, the, the final words, and on the whole world. And so from then on, uh, she began to recite this form of prayer almost constantly, the prayer of the, the chaplet, or the chaplet of divine mercy as we know it. And she would offer it especially for the dying. God would make clear to her through his revelations uh, that this chaplet was not something that it was just for her to pray, uh, but that it would be for the whole world. And so she was taught how to pray this prayer as we know it, on rosary beads. And it was a prayer that she wrote out that was promulgated, especially after her death, according to the cause of her canonization uh, that was on her behalf given over uh, to the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints uh, by her spiritual director and those who knew her well. It was a part of this greater plane of the mercy of God uh, that was attached to uh, 
the divine mercy that he wanted to give to the universal church, as he told her in, in uh, Revelation about the chaplet. And so one of the things that Jesus also wanted uh, Sister Faustina to extend to the ends of the earth was the gift of his divine mercy through a special devotion, which we know to be his divine mercy Sunday. We celebrate divine mercy Sunday uh, every year, the Sunday after Easter. And this was given at the request of Jesus to Sister Faustina that was uh, promulgated by Pope John Paul II uh, later on in the latter half of the 20th century, which pontiff would canonize Sister Faustina, the first saint of the new millennium in the year 2000. And so he had a great love for Sister Faustina and was a, an ardent supporter of uh, this devotion to divine mercy. God gave um, to Sister Faustina in detail the meaning of what this feast day would become and the promises that he would attach to it. The second Sunday of Easter uh, from ancient times had a very specific name. It was called Domenica in Albis, or in English, Sunday in White. And it was an ancient tradition amongst the early Christians who were, of course, were baptized and brought into the church uh, at, the at the vigil of Easter. And it was very customary back at that, in those days, uh, to literally, even as an adult, be reclothed completely in a white garment upon your baptism as a sign, of course, as we say, even in infant baptisms, as a sign of the new life that you have put on Christ. And brand new neophytes, new, brand new Christians, when they were baptized and brought into the church on Easter Sunday, it was their custom to wear that white outfit for the next eight days through the second Sunday of Easter. And they would return on the second Sunday of Easter still in their white garments. And it became known as the Sunday in white, Dominica and Albis. And so that designation was the designation that sort of followed that Sunday uh, up until the 20th century when it was renamed the Sunday of Divine Mercy. So Jesus said this to Faustina, my daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls, especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open, and I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy, the soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. On that day, all the divine floodgates through which graces flow are opened. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. My mercy is so great that no mind, be it of man or of angel, will be able to fathom it throughout all eternity. Everything that exists has come forth from the very depths of my most tender mercy. Every soul in its relation to me will contemplate my love and mercy throughout eternity. The feast of mercy emerged from my very depths of tenderness. It is my desire that it be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter. 
mankind will not have peace until it turns to the fount of my mercy. So this is Jesus' very explicit direction to Sister Faustina, uh, who, how do you do that when you are a cloistered nun? <laughs> to get the universal church to set up a brand new liturgical feast day, uh, you have no power whatsoever to bring that about. And yet, we, uh, we know so much about its authenticity and its beauty because it did come to pass. Everything that Jesus commanded Sister Faustina uh, would come to pass, if not in her life, certainly uh, in the time that succeeded her life. Jesus gave these revelations to her in the years between World War I and World War II. And those warnings to mankind were already given to the human race through the seers of Fatima in 1917. And the Blessed Mother reminded the West that if souls do not repent, even greater destruction will befall the human race. Right? She gave that prophecy in 1917, a year before the conclusion of World War I. She said the war is going to end, but if souls do not repent, an even greater war will break forth. And in the decade and a half that followed, Sister Faustina would receive these revelations of divine mercy from Jesus, who also knew what would befall uh, the human race in the onslaught of World War II. And so he wanted to give them the gift of his unfathomable mercy, to which mercy he gave great promises. These were promises that were given over especially uh, to devotion to the, uh, the the, the image of divine mercy where it is venerated in the homes of the faithful promises that were given especially also to the recitation of divine mercy uh, in the chaplet and the holy uh, the, the holy novena of divine mercy which precedes divine mercy Sunday and his mercies we can uh, sort of give uh, a fourfold distinction the first promise that Jesus gave was the promise of defense. What I might also coin, we'll say, the promise of intercession. In the recitation of the divine mercy, Jesus promises that he will be the merciful defense of the one who prays or the one who intercedes for, uh, or the person that is interceded for by the one who prays the chaplet. If only he says they pray this chaplet or pray this chaplet on behalf of the one especially who is dying. So he promised the defense of those who would pray it, and he promised the, inter the power of intercession, the same power that he gave to Sister Faustina in her life as she prayed for mercy from the, uh, God's wrath, from God's justice, and was given over to the world through her prayers. This was going to continue for those and be granted also to all those who would pray it. So Jesus promises his defense to those who would have devotion to divine mercy and devotion to the recitation of the chaplet of divine mercy. As is part of the title of the feast itself, Jesus promises the gift of his mercy as well, especially at the hour of death. And this is an incredible promise. Jesus said that to those who pray the chaplet of divine mercy, at the hour of their death, or at the hour of the death of someone that is before them, Jesus will stand between that soul 
and God the Father, not as a just judge, but as a merciful Savior. Wow. That's a really consoling promise. And Jesus, you know, doesn't tend to lie, you know, he's basically a truthful guy. And if this is what he says, um, you know, you're probably not going to lose out if you keep that in mind when you approach uh, the, the day of your transition as well from this earth to the realm of eternity. It is given over to us uh, by way of, of prudence and devotion. The devotion to the divine mercy which Jesus gives through Sister Faustina uh, is not what we call an article of faith in the same way that we pray the creed, uh, but it is given over to us in the same way that uh, all of the, uh, div uh, the private revelations and uh, the, the prophecies given to us by the saints throughout the centuries are given to us also for our day and our time. Uh, and so uh, should you believe how all of this unfolded and consider it credible in your own heart, then recall this, that the chaplet of divine mercy comes with a great promise, especially at the hour of death. Should you pray it for yourself or should you pray it for the one that you love? And we all know the importance of that because every single one of us in this church is very well aware of the people in our life that we love who are far from God. Some of whom we have probably prayed for decades that they would turn back to him in repentance. And there's a source of you know, great sorrow and tension and anxiety for us. And to recall that God gives us a kind of hope in his mercy uh, that does not disappoint and that he goes so far as to give us a, an explicit promise in this chaplet. That even if we know someone, love someone, uh, and it is the very last second of the 11th hour of their life, even then, mercy can be given to them by their prayer of this chaplet, or even by our prayer of this chaplet on their behalf. Jesus gives through the divine mercy also the promise of hope. He said especially that priests will recommend this prayer to sinners as their last hope of salvation. And that he promises even the most hardened sinner who would pray this chaplet even one time would not fail to receive grace from God's infinite mercy. That even uh, the, the gift of uh, sincere conversion would be bestowed upon the most hardened sinner even as a last hope of salvation. That God would not deny this hope to uh, those whose sins were the worst of the world. You know, I don't, I don't know how we rack up, you know, how we sort of compare with each other on who's a worse sinner and who's a better sinner. Uh, but Probably in the scheme of things, we could say that on this earth right now, there is one person who is in greater need of mercy than any other person on earth. Maybe one person on this earth right now who is farther from God than any other person on earth. I presume that's not any of us. I hope to God that's not any of us. But even for that one who is farthest from God, if you prayed the chaplet of divine mercy for them today, God would hear your prayer.
Wow. Lastly, God gave, in sort of a related way, he gave a great promise of answered prayers through the chaplet. And he said specifically to Sister Faustina that unimaginable graces would be given to those who trust in his mercy. That through the chaplet, you will obtain everything if what you ask for is compatible with my will. And so we pray when we pray for holiness, when we pray for the will of God, and we give over our desires to God and surrender to God through the devotion of this chaplet. Jesus promises the kind of graces that he promised in Scripture uh, through the words of St. Paul that eyes cannot see, ears cannot hear. It has not even entered the heart in, the, in, in man's imagination what God has prepared for those who love him. And so he sort of re-ups that, doubles down on that promise through the uh, devotion to his divine mercy, uh, his devotion, devotion to the chaplet of divine mercy and the novena to divine mercy, that all things can be obtained by God uh, because he has made this prayer so powerful in his sight. And so we celebrate today, uh, you know, a, a milestone anniversary. Well, I, I don't know, is, is it exactly today? What's the exact day of the 30th anniversary? Does somebody know? Anybody? Yell that really loud. Oh, Ash Wednesday 30 years ago. Google could tell us what day of the year that was. <laughs> but as of 30 years ago, Ash Wednesday. <laughs> what began then and continues to this day is part of an outpouring of the divine mercy of God as uh, a reminder that he remains with us always, most especially through the gift of his Holy Eucharist, uh, the gift of his body and blood. And his body and blood uh, in the Blessed Sacrament is for us the closest on this earth that we get to actually see, experience, and, and sense how this mercy unfolds. So we're going to talk about that in just a minute uh, because I need to get a drink uh, and run to the little boys' room. Uh, so we're going to take just a three-minute break or four-minute break, uh, and then we'll continue to see how this gift of God's divine mercy relates to Eucharistic adoration and what we celebrate in this anniversary. <laughs> 